Please stand now for the reading of today's scripture text. It's found in Matthew 8, verses 14 through 17. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and cast out and he cast out the spirits with words and healed all those who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. You may be seated. Well, good morning once again, beloved of Christ. As I prepared for this morning's sermon, I was struck by the presence of both life and death, restoration and degradation, the curse and its cure. In our daily lives, we are routinely confronted with the reality of a fallen creation, and we are given glimpses of the curse's defeat. Our generations are awfully rightly criticized for not understanding death and suffering as all previous generations before us have understood it. We've grown very accustomed to the blessings of modern medicine and technology. We expect that our children will all survive to adulthood. We expect those who are sick to get better, at least until they are very old. And we are surprised when death strikes down someone who is young or otherwise healthy. But that isn't the world that most people in history have lived in, and that many today even in different parts of the world live in. So if you would ask me if the world here and now is any better off than it was one or 2,000 years ago, I would have to reply that in many ways, yes. In large part for the reason I just gave. Our quality of life has gone up so much along with our ability to survive and thrive under conditions that would have meant a death sentence to almost all of humanity in the past, our quality of life has gone on so much that we have to pause from time to time to remember that for most of human existence, death was every bit as close to them as health is to us. It was a very real, tangible presence in their lives. Our difficulty in processing loss due to the relative infrequency in which we face it in unexpected ways testifies that things have gotten significantly better for men on this earth over the years. As Christians, we ought to see both the progression and recognize how this progress has been made possible. We must not give man credit for what God has done. It is the reigning of the king who has authority over life and death, over sickness and healing, 
over the curse and its cure that explains the improvement that men have experienced on this earth. The power of the gospel is the answer for why things get better, even in the face of the degenerative effects of the fall. Of course, yes, I am aware, as we all should be, that there is still great evil in our midst in this world. Just as there are many who are alive today for whom all these advancements, all these betterments in life are not a present reality for them. Yet even in this, we see the progress that has been made. In ages past, the default assumption for everybody who was alive would have been that some, if not most, of their children would die before reaching maturity. The expectation for all people of all classes would have been throughout all of history that famine, disease, and mischief would rob everyone of somebody that they loved and cared for before it's their natural time. The fact that we notice this now, the fact that we react so strongly when one of us is faced with this now, proves that things have impressed so much, improved so much that it is no longer our default that that is how life will work. The dominant reality around us has moved on the scale away from sick, certain death toward life. True, we are a long way away from the eternal paradise that we have been promised in Christ, the eternal paradise that we know is before us, yet there has been progress. I say all that both because it has been on my mind because of things that I've been confronted with this week and because in our text this morning, we are once again going to be presented with Christ as healer and restorer in a world where sickness and disease and oppression reigned. A major part of the earthly ministry of Christ was that of the miracles of healing. Everywhere he went, there were people that were desperate to be made well. They were desperate because there was nowhere else to turn. There was no other hope for them. And their lives were dominated by death and sickness. Into the gloom and despair of people who were intimate with death, The Son of God walked with healing and restoration at the command of his voice. And even though sadly the masses would miss the greater work that he came to perform to be able to forgive the sins of men, the people would come to Christ to be physically healed. Even though they missed the opportunity to be made spiritually well, they recognize the chance to finally be made physically well. Well, Matthew will, I believe, help us better understand the connection between the curse and sickness, as well as between the forgiveness of sins and on the undoing of the effects of the fall. As we are confronted with the wealth of healing miracles that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry, 
As we go out throughout the gospel, we'll see pattern after pattern. Time and again, Jesus will heal many. And if we are not careful, we will simply glaze over and, and ignore what is going on. We say, oh yes, that's nice. Jesus did it again. Yay, Jesus, you healed some more people. But it is my prayer that we would not simply pass them off as nice little stories that have nothing to do with us. Each and every one of these events was significant in the lives of those whom Jesus touched. And each and every one of these events is significant in our seeing and experiencing through them, through the narrative, the restorative work of the gospel. So I ask you to join me in prayer as we continue in Matthew's gospel. Father, forbid it that we would become so used to the miracles of Christ that we would be just so used to what Jesus did for those who were near him, that he has done for his people through the ages, that we would fail to be impacted by it when we confront it. Forbid that we would read of these healings and, and just look for what is next. To think, yes, just another one of those tales. But let's move on. Forbid that we would treat any of Scripture in that manner. Help us to see the wealth of the gospel power, the wealth of restoration, the, the authority and the wonder of our Savior in these passages. Help us to better understand the work of Christ. Help us to know him, to love him, to grow in our desire to obey him fully because we have spent time on these passages, because we have gloried in the healing miracles of our Savior. Give me the right words, the right tone of speech. Open our ears to hear from your word through your spirit. In all things, make us more like Christ and glorify your name on this earth. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin our passage this morning, we see that Peter's house in Capernaum is the setting of the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, as well as the myriad of healings that will follow shortly after. Well, that might seem like a minor detail, yet I think that that bit of information sheds some important light for us on the lives of Christ's disciples as they followed Jesus. Especially when we see the context directly following our passage this morning, where Jesus, is discuss Jesus discusses the cost of following him. I think many of us have a tendency to picture Jesus' Jesus's disciples as men who completely left everything of their old lives behind and for the rest of their lives lived free from the normal human dynamics of family and vocation. I think we often picture them almost the way that we think of dark age knights, middle age uh, monks, not knights, monks. 
We think of them as men who abandoned the normal flow of human existence to serve God in totality and in isolation. Yet, as we see our text this morning, Peter had a home. Peter had a wife. He was married. John let us know in his gospel that Peter and his brother Andrew were from Bethsaida, a small town north and east of Capernaum, a little bit more than a mile away from the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Sometime after Jesus called them, these brothers, they must have moved their families to Capernaum. Mark tells us it was the home of Simon, which was also known, we also know him as Peter, and Andrew, that Peter's mother-in-law also lived there. We can surmise that when they had been called by Jesus, these men packed up and moved their entire extended family to now reside in Capernaum. No doubt they moved there to be able to remain close to Jesus through his earthly ministry. Remember we talked last week that Capernaum served as Jesus' base of operations. It is the town they came back to, the town they traveled from when they would go on healings and teachings throughout the region and where they would come back. Even though they uprooted their lives even though they left their fishing businesses behind to go out and follow Jesus, these men had not abandoned their families. Their radical obedience to the call of Christ included their continued obedience to the call that God had placed on their lives to be faithful husbands, fathers, and sons-in-law. I make mention of this Because this is a good corrective to the idea that one can sacrifice one area of their God-given responsibilities to their families in pursuit of a call that they feel that God has placed on their lives. It is not faithfulness to God that causes someone to sacrifice their families on the altar of ministry or on the altar of piety or the altar of of service, or the altar of self-fulfillment. God does not call anyone to disobey some of his commands in order to better follow others. Consider this in the context of the text that we will be focusing on, Lord willing, next week in Matthew 8, 18 through 22. There we read, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came to him and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So whatever that means, whatever that passage that we will Lord willing deal with next week means, it cannot mean that to follow Christ, one must or is allowed to abandon those people and responsibility to which scripture would otherwise bound them. 
Jesus' disciples were real men with real lives and real responsibilities. It was not easier for them somehow to obey the radical call of Christ that he placed on them as though somehow their lives were simpler than ours or that they had less to risk or less to sacrifice. So we do not get a pass on following their example because things are so much different for us here and now. These disciples both believed and followed Jesus. They did, in large part, risk everything. Yet, even so, they remained faithful in the normal aspects of their life and family. So they did both. And following their example, we must do both. So what is it that holds us back from risking everything in obedience to Christ? Or what is it that we are using as an excuse to not remain steadfast and faithful in the responsibilities that God has already given us? Well, as we continue on in the text this morning, Matthew wrote that when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law laying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. So as Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw that Peter's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. As with the description of the ailment of the centurion's servant from just a few verses before, the way that this woman's sickness is described could be any number of different ailments that would cause a strong fever. The exact nature of the illness isn't really what's the big concern. It's that it was real and serious is what matters. Luke recorded the same incident that when Jesus entered the house, those who were already there, who had been caring for Peter's mother-in-law, came to him quickly. They entreated him. They pleaded with him to go and heal her. They were worried for her. It gives us a picture of just seeing how much danger she was in, just how sick the woman was. So Jesus went to her, said he reached and touched her hand. And she was healed. So complete was her restoration, so complete was her healing, that she immediately rose up and returned to her normal routine as hostess. She cared for, she served Jesus and his companions. I read this, read this and I picture a woman who is at one moment lying sick enough that people are afraid she will not recover and the next moment, lamenting just how untidy her home was, embarrassed that things were out of order, and then asking Jesus and his friends if she could make them a sandwich while they have another cookie. Well, as I first considered this particular healing, the thought came to my mind that this must just be a great example of Jesus healing because he had a specific need of service from the person. Jesus and his friends were hungry. The woman was sick, who would normally make them their food. He heals the woman, she makes them food. 
I even thought that this could be a great immediate little small silly example of somebody being saved for the good work that was placed before them. Well, that would be an example of how sometimes the first thing that comes to your mind, even if you think there could be some kind of biblical support for it, is not always the right way to understand a passage. Upon further evaluation and study, it seems clear that the inclusion of her immediately turning to serve them was not to show that she was healed so that she could serve them, but to show that her healing was both immediate and it was effective. It was not simply that her fever broke. It's not that Jesus went in, touched her hand, And then she started to turn a corner and little bit by little bit got better. And even though it could have been just a happy coincidence, the people believed it was a miracle because she was getting worse. Jesus was there. She started getting better. No, that's not how this story reads. She was fully healed and restored instantaneously when Christ reached for her hand. There was no lingering hindrance to keep her from her normal labors. Well, as earlier with the lepers, Jesus touched a sick person when it would have been forbidden for him under Jewish law and tradition to do so. It was against Jewish halakha, or the totality of laws, ordinances, and traditions that regulated Jewish religious observance and the daily lives of Jewish people. It was against Jewish halakha to touch a person who was seriously ill with a fever. Yet as with the leper earlier in chapter 8, even though to touch them would have been men would have been seen as an act of defiling himself, Jesus touched her. And instead of becoming defiled himself, he removed the problem altogether. He took her sickness and he made her well. One commentator aptly put it this way, Jesus' touch did not defile the healer, but it healed the defiled. Jesus' touch did not defile the healer, but it healed the defiled. Our text continues in verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons And he cast out the evil spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Well, as it so often did, the news of Jesus staying at Peter's house traveled. It spread. People found out about it. And many who were sick or demon-possessed were brought to him. Matthew recorded that it wasn't until evening that all these people began to be brought to him to seek healing Mark and Luke help us understand why they waited till evening to come find him. In both of their accounts, this narrative took place on the Sabbath, directly after Jesus had healed a demon-possessed man in the synagogue. Unsurprisingly, that caused quite a stir among the people, and the news of Jesus and his power spread. Many who had heard what he had done would have been trying to keep track of where he was at. They would 
keep tabs on him so that they might be healed, so that they might bring their loved ones to him to be healed. They would surely have been people following Jesus as he went throughout the town so they could report back to others about exactly where he was staying. This taking place on the Sabbath does give us good reason why the people didn't come him until the evening. In Jewish tradition, a day begins at sundown and lasts till the next sundown. It doesn't begin in the morning and end at night as as we are accustomed to. So as soon as evening came, the Sabbath was over and the people were free to go about their normal business and be able to go and travel to where Jesus was. Even though Jesus had proven that he had no problem healing or casting out demons on the Sabbath, that very Sabbath he had done so, yet the traditions of the people held so much sway over them that they would not even pursue healing from sickness or demon oppression until the Sabbath was over. As we see in the gospel accounts, many were brought to Jesus with all kinds of physical and spiritual malady, and he healed all of them. Jesus fulfilled messianic and kingdom expectations everywhere he traveled. Sickness, disease, spiritual oppression were all banished from his presence and from all who came near to him. Just think of the change that would have taken place in that region as all the sickness and malady was gone as Jesus traveled from place to place, city to city, town to town. Of course, it was these sorts of miraculous healings that Jesus would give as proof to who he was when the disciples of John the Baptist came to him and asked him, are you the one we are expecting or is there going to be someone else? Apparently, he wasn't behaving exactly like they thought he was going to behave. A common pattern among those who were expecting the Messiah. But when they asked Jesus, are you the one? He simply said, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Of course, there Jesus is borrowing from common imagery from Isaiah as to how things would look under the king, the coming kingdom of heaven, under the coming king, the Messiah of God. You look at Isaiah 29, 18 and 19. It reads, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. Read again in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So everywhere Christ went, everywhere he performed these miraculous healings, he was testifying to the reality of the kingdom, testifying to being the chosen one of God who had been promised. 
Continuing in Matthew's theme, Jesus' authority throughout all of these miracles was on display. He had authority over the spirit or the physical world. He could heal all sickness and all disease. He also had authority over the spiritual world. He could command demons or evil spirits, and they obeyed. His is an absolute authority. In none of this did Jesus need cooperation from anyone. He commanded, and he was obeyed. Even his enemies could not resist his voice or deny his command. Well, even though our modern medical advancements have given us a very different relationship to the common sicknesses and diseases of the world, we can at least relate to a feeling of helplessness that they bring. You ever had a young child in your arms with a fever of 103 or 104 just burning in their body, miserable, helpless, looking to you for some kind of relief? If you've ever experienced that, you know the helplessness that we face in the midst of sickness. So we can understand why so many were desperate to be near to Jesus and be healed because they felt that same kind of helplessness against a wide variety of illnesses that today we shrug off as though they're nothing. It is understandable and relatable to us. Yet we have a much harder time relating to or understanding the presence of demon possession that is described in this point in history. Something is different in how we relate to demon possession. The question we might ask is whether that difference is in our understanding of demon possession or if that difference is in the nature and frequency of demon possession now as compared to then. Has it as a phenomenon, has it changed or have just our attitudes toward it changed? Well, looking through the gospel accounts, we cannot help but conclude that demon possession was a major problem in first century Israel. Jesus and his disciples were confronted with it regularly. It was out in the open. It was obvious. Yet, even in the rest of the accounts of Scripture, this kind of prevalence of demon possession seems unique. Well, I don't think that we can simply shrug off, shrug this off as a difference uh, that there was an ignorant and less informed people or that they belonged to a less evolved culture. If scripture simply said that the common people perceived as though there was demon possession, we might be tempted to think that that was the answer. That they simply didn't understand the complexities of the human brain. They didn't understand mental illness or physical illness as we do. Yet, much more is said of demon possession than simply that people thought it was happening. It is not fallible men who made these claims. It is men of God moved by the Holy Spirit to write down the very words of God who made these claims about the prevalence of demon possession. 
the Son of God himself, our Messiah, Jesus, believed that there were many that who he confronted that were demon-possessed. And he dealt with their problems as though they were demon-possessed. And he fixed their problems as though they were demon-possessed. And he commanded the demons, and they obeyed. So if we are going to believe Scripture not our cynical modern eyes, then demon possession was both real and prevalent in Jesus' day. But what about now? To be sure, since the Enlightenment, men have labored very hard to remove all acknowledgement and understanding of the supernatural in this world. So even if demon possession was as common now as it was in the first century, our scientists, our doctors, and our other experts would no doubt deny it. They would no doubt develop theories and entire disciplines of academia to explain it away or to attribute natural causes to it. They would no doubt attempt to medicate it into submission or to hide it from the eyes of the population. Well, I think that is plainly true of how it would be approached today. Yet that doesn't answer the question as to whether or not it is as prevalent now as it was then. Well, let's look at this from a slightly different angle. In the Old Testament, there are mentions of demons in a number of places. Yet there is not a single mention of demon possession. It is said in a few places that when people sacrificed to idols, they in fact were sacrificing to demons. We know that in a number of places in the Old Testament, demons had the ability to perform signs and wonders, to act as though they were gods in order to obtain the worship of men. We know that they had power and influence throughout the Old Testament. Yet even in Daniel 4, which we would think would be the most clear picture of obvious demon possession, when Nebuchadnezzar was driven out of his mind, out of his, out of his throne, into the wilderness, and acted and ate like a beast on his hands and his knees, even then, Scripture does not say that he was demon-possessed. It says that God robbed him of a clear mind until the point when he would recognize the king of kings and be restored. So it seems reasonable to me that there was something unique going on during this time and at this place that caused the demonic activity in and among men to be so intensified as we find in the gospel accounts. Something had changed. Something that wasn't present before and has not been present since. Well, as a student of scripture and history, I have to think that it was tied to the earthly ministry of the Son of God. In the incarnation of the Son of God, the greatest battle for the fate of the universe reached its heights. Events were unfolding to which all of history had been building and to which now all of history will forevermore point back 
The fate of the nation of Israel would be decided. The fate of all whom God had willed to redeem was going to be decided. The rule, the kingship over all of creation was going to be decided. Just think about the unique way that Israel stood in defiance to God during this time period and how it was so much so different from all the ways that they had turned against God in history. That the story of Israel is full of, of times when they turned away from God toward idolatry. Yet this time in history, at this point, at this critical juncture in the flow of all of redemptive history, they didn't turn to idols. They didn't turn to false gods. They sought safety in themselves. They sought safety in their own righteousness. Perhaps the increased work of the enemy among the nation Leading up to this point, it was responsible to bring them into rebellion in a way that was so much more subtle. It is so much more subtle to trust in religion, to trust in your own righteousness, than it is to trust in false gods and to bow down and worship idols. It is still in truth idolatry, but it is so much more subtle They were uniquely brought into this kind of rebellion against God during this time of history in a way that would prove much more successful in hardening them against God and his warnings. This time, they would not be brought back to faithfulness by a sovereign disciplining hand. This time, the hardening and rebellion of the people would be complete and the nation would be cut off. So, in the Old Testament, we see that demons were present and they were powerful. They had convinced nations that they were gods. They performed signs and wonders among the people of the earth and they were worshipped. By the time we get to the New Testament, the demons remained present and powerful. Yet their tactics appear to have changed and their efforts increased. Demon possession was commonplace, even among God's covenant people of Israel. Yet, that increase in demonic activity was not sustained. In the course of redemptive history, it seems as though this was a final and powerful offensive of an, of an already being defeated enemy. The kingdom of heaven was at hand. Her king was present. He had arrived and he was set to conquer every enemy. And the enemy saw the writing on the wall and lashed out in every way that it could. As we see here is Jesus entering into the strong man's house in order to plunder his goods. As the text we'll be able to focus on a little later on in Matthew. To do so, he had to first bind the strong man. 
He began by defeating the strong man's servants with the command of his voice. Throughout his earthly ministry, he displayed his authority over every single evil spirit that he confronted. And before he returned to the right hand of the Father on high to rule over his creation and to sit as king, he bound Satan himself. I believe that this binding of the strong man explains why we don't see either the signs and wonders that the demons performed so evidently so often in the Old Testament, nor the frequency and intensity of demon possession present now as it was in the early earthly ministry of Christ. It is not that Satan and his servants have no power or no influence in the world today, because the fullness of their defeat and the carrying out of God's sure judgment against them has not yet been metered out. Even so, because of Christ reigning in victory, they are prevented from deceiving the nations as they once did. They cannot harass God's people as they once harassed the nation of Israel. Because under the new covenant, each and every member of the new covenant is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, not simply the elect among them. I'm not making any absolute statements on exactly what spiritual warfare does or does not go on around us. I am not saying that demons have no power or influence in the world around us. Yet I think it is clear that there were unique things taking place leading up to and during the arrival of the kingdom of heaven on this earth. I believe it's clear that things changed in this world after Christ's death and resurrection. Now I've even read of church father, early church fathers who recognized that after the resurrection of Christ, there were supernatural types of things supernatural signs and wonders, powers in witchcraft and the like that were no longer common, that not that long before had been normal and expected. We like to think in our enlightened modern minds that the ancient depictions of, of powers and gods and witchcraft, that, that there was nothing to it, it was silliness. Consider perhaps instead that there was demonic activity that was rampant in the land, performing signs and wonders and leading the nations astray. In ways we will only begin to be able to understand in eternity, Jesus did change things on this, in this world as he walked the earth. Well, after relating how Jesus healed all the sick and demon-possessed that were brought to him, Matthew wrote this. He said, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our, sick, our diseases. Well, similarly to how now, if I were to give you a quote from a popular book or a popular movie, I would expect that the people involved in that scene 
The, the imagery around them, the depictions, the descriptions of what's around him, the mood of the characters, even the way that it made you feel when you heard that quote, that all of those things would come to your mind just by simply hearing a quote that is familiar to you. Some of us can't help ourselves but to talk to each other largely through movie quotes or quotes from our favorite TV shows. It's a similar phenomenon that we see with the prevalence of memes, that a simple image can bring up so much to our minds and give so much context. Well, this is what Matthew expected as he quoted from Isaiah. Often, Gospel and and New Testament authors would quote one small section of a passage in Scripture from the Old Testament, expecting that the audience would then be brought back to the whole context, that they would feel the mood, the flow of the passage. Well, I'm not going to ask how many of you remember the context of Isaiah 53.4. So let's just read it together and freshen up all of our memories. So I'm going to read from Isaiah 50, starting at 52, 13 through 53, 12, from what is known as the fourth servant song in Isaiah. So turn with me to Isaiah 52, 13, and we'll read through 53, 12. So Isaiah is after Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. And if you get to Jeremiah, you've gone too far. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. So that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry grounds. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and dejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, 
although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, this, of course, is a very familiar passage to us from Isaiah, one of the most famous famous passages from Isaiah, one that no doubt clearly speaks of Christ and his earthly ministry. What is interesting is when Matthew looks back on this passage in Isaiah, he does so a little differently than how it is referenced elsewhere in the New Testament. He looks at how Jesus took away sickness and spiritual oppression from the people, where others seem to focus on how he took away people's sins, such as 1 Peter 2, 19 through 25. Well, if you were paying close attention as we read through Isaiah 53, you may have noticed that Matthew quoted Isaiah 53, 4, as he took our illness and bore our diseases. Yet, when I read directly from Isaiah, it read, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Well, that kind of small difference actually isn't that uncommon when the New Testament authors quoted Old Testament passages. Sometimes it was because they, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, simply translated the Hebrew text using a different word. Remember, there can often be a wide range of acceptable ways to translate a word from one language to another, and the slightly different connotations of the word will help guide our interpretation. Other times, this difference is because the New Testament author quoted directly from the Greek Septuagint, an early Greek translation of the Hebrew text, rather than translating directly from the Hebrew text itself. Again, those are nothing to be concerned about. The Holy Spirit guided these men as they interpreted the rest of Scripture and as they wrote. As such, they had a freedom to choose within the range of meaning of a word or even to shed new light on a text that had not been previously understood. The Hebrew was translated in a way that spoke Sorry. They had a freedom to do this in a way that you and I do not have a freedom to interpret Scripture. So from the New Testament authors, we are able to see the true meaning and the full meaning of Old Testament Scripture. But from the New Testament authors, we are not taught how to add new meaning or change the meaning of a previously established passage. You are not 
being led infallibly by the Holy Spirit to carry about the exact words of God in new revelation. Just want to be clear about that. Well, in this case, the Septuagint agreed with the more common understood emphasis of this text. So the Hebrew was translated in a way that spoke more of spiritual problems and sin than it did of physical problems and sickness. It's the same kind of way that the ESV and the NASB both translate the Hebrew, though to its credit, the NASB does denote that the Hebrew words translated as griefs and sorrows can mean sickness and pains. In fact, the Hebrew, though a bit ambiguous, does seem to speak to both of these understandings. The word that Matthew translates as sickness is most often translated from Hebrew as sickness, disease, or illness, though it can refer, refer to griefs or affliction. Whereas the word that Matthew translates as diseases is most often and naturally from the Hebrew translated as sorrows, suffering, and pain. So how should we understand Matthew's use of the servant song from Isaiah 53 in this context? I think that Matthew rightly saw the connection between the sin in this world and the prevalence of physical and spiritual torments faced by men. The curse of God on creation brought about by the sin of men is responsible for every sickness, every disease, every pain, sorrow, hurt, oppression, and misery of men. It is responsible for every sickness, for every ailment. And Jesus dealt with all of it. The people of Matthew's day were very prone to see a, a direct connection between sin and illness, between sin and deformity. So much so that they even would assume a connection where there wasn't a direct connection. Think of the blind man who Jesus healed in John chapter 9. Jesus' disciples asked him, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you remember Jesus' response? It was not this man who sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus didn't rebuke the question of the disciples, nor did he deny, did he deny that a straight correlation between his physical suffering and someone's sin could have been responsible. And yet the man's ailment was still not by random chance. He suffered so that God's Messiah might show the world his authority over blindness. That he might show his ability to restore what the curse had destroyed. Of course, other passages such as James 5 remind us that we often we must more often consider that sin might be the direct cause of someone's infirmity. That it is, in fact, appropriate to at least ask the question when somebody has fallen ill or fallen into a deep depression, 
we ought to at least ask the question, is there any sin that you need to repent of? Not all sin is, is, or not all sickness is caused by someone's actual sin. There's not a direct connection all the time, but there can be. There often is. And we are all too quick to discount that connection when we should be pleading with somebody to repent of their sin and be restored to righteousness in Christ to be cleansed by Christ and renewed, we ought to be urging that rather than giving them more pills or prescriptions. Our loving Father may be using physical suffering as a tool to bring his beloved child to repentance, as a loving Father disciplines his child when they go astray. Yet it is important in this area that we be biblically balanced. We cannot assume every ailment has a direct and immediate cause in a person's sin. But we must also consider the possibility that somebody may be suffering physically because of their sin. In either case, we ought to be more cognizant that all disorder, both physical and spiritual, finds its ultimate cause and the sin of man, and the curse on creation that it brought about. As we draw to a close, I want all of us to consider this. Every time he healed the physically or spiritually oppressed, Jesus proved his authority over the curse, and he proved his his ability to restore creation to its intended order. He proved his authority and his ability to make all things new. Every time Jesus healed the sick and the oppressed, he gave gospel glimpses as he radically changed people's lives for the better. He allowed people to see that his kingdom had now arrived. And that eventually there would be a paradise as increasingly the gospel power overcame the chaos of the curse. Jesus has taken our sickness just as he has taken our sins upon himself. The latter had to be physically endured for the consequences of it. While the former he was able to undo and overcome by the power of his word. Christ has undone, is undoing, and one day will finally and completely undo the effects of the curse that was brought on by man's sin. May this gospel reality be the lens through which we view the world around us. May we see sickness and death and suffering as the final ravings of an already defeated foe. And may we see the expectation of health and life as the testament to the authority of our Lord to overcome the terrible effects of man's sin and rebellion. Our Lord came to undo the effects of the curse and to bring life and liberty. He came to the sick 
and dying with healing in his hands. Healing for the body and healing for the soul. Surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. Surely he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. All glory to God. Father, we give you all honor and glory and praise. Father, help us day by day just to to get but a glimpse more of the wonder of the gospel, of the power of Christ as he transforms lives, as his people go out in power by his spirit because all authority is his. May we see the wonder of the gospel even though the world be dark. We see the light of Christ. Father, teach us to see through biblical lenses. Teach us to evaluate our reality through the gospel. That our modern world, our modern sensibilities, our modern academia would not blind us and harden us against the true reality that is around us. Help us to see, help us to understand, help us to stand firm and be faithful, looking to Christ as the author and perfecter of our faith, walking in obedience by the power of his spirit. For the glory of his holy name. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.